Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. You are listening to a download from Yale University Press. For more information, go to the website www.yalebooks.com. Hello, and welcome to episode 19 of the Yale Press Podcast, the monthly podcast from Yale University Press. My name is Chris Gondek, and this month we're going old school and doing segments with three authors. I'll be speaking with Ken Wells about his new book, The Good Pirates of the Forgotten Bayous, Fighting to Save a Way of Life in the Wake of Hurricane Katrina. Peter R. Mansour about his new book, Baghdad at Sunrise, A Brigade Commander's War in Iraq. And Ivan Bernetti about an anthology of graphic fiction, cartoons, and true stories, volume two. Stay tuned. Right now it's hurricane season, and with every storm watch on the news, memories return to that awful day in 2005 when Hurricane Katrina struck Louisiana. In his new book, The Good Pirates of the Forgotten Bayous, Fighting to Save a Way of Life in the Wake of Hurricane Katrina, Louisiana native Ken Wells provides a close-up look at the harrowing experiences in the backwaters of New Orleans during and after Katrina, following the story of the Rabanne family of St. Bernard Parish, which lays to the southeast of New Orleans. Ken Wells is a senior editor and writer for Condé Nast's Portfolio magazine, as well as the author of Crawfish Mountain and the Catahoula Bayou Trilogy. During his career as a journalist, he's been a Pulitzer Prize finalist and a writer and features editor for the front page of the Wall Street Journal. Ken Wells, thanks for taking time to talk to Yale University Press today. After Hurricane Katrina, uh, the eyes of the world were basically glued to New Orleans, yet you ended up reporting on the developments in St. Bernard Parish, just southeast of the city. Why did you choose to cover the story of that parish? Well, you know, essentially what happened is I was part of the Wall Street Journal's reporting team, and we were at first ourselves, you know, riveted on New Orleans. But I happened to be stuck in a Baton Rouge uh, hotel room near the airport where there were um, a number of survivors who had been trapped there, I think by this time, like nine days, um, with the expectation that they would have been home in a day or two, and they turned out to be from St. Bernard Parish. And as they began to sort of unwind their story, I sort of looked at a map that I had to refresh my memory of exactly where St. Bernard Parish was. Um, And I realized that they sort of sat just below what had become sort of the tsunami zone of the Lower Ninth Ward, you know, where the industrial canal levees had broken. And as they began to sort of tell their story, it was very clear to me that a disaster of major proportions had happened there. And when I further Googled, uh, you know, that place, I realized that there was almost nothing about it. So I decided maybe that there was a less well-trod story there, and I should go for it. They seem to more or less take the direct hit of of Hurricane Katrina. Well, you know, what what happens is that when you look at a map of the place, they actually extend south and east far enough outside of New Orleans that they really were, the lower bayou communities in particular, were in the shadow of a Category 4 storm before it weakened. And beyond that, you know, they were sort of tripled whammy because the way that it ends up working out, they got the overpowering surge that happened because the industrial canal levees broke, were undermined in several positions, and literally unleashed a tsunami upon the hapless Lower Ninth Ward and then went on down into St. Bernard Parish and drowned them as well. And then there's an infamous shipping channel that was built in the 60s called the Mississippi River Gulf Outlet, 
which is supposed to be an, a shorter alternative to the Gulf of Mexico to the Mississippi River. But in fact, over its years, it's, it's seen very little traffic. But what it took, proved to be very good at was to sort of gathering up Katrina surge and sending it over the levees that sort of flank the eastern edge of St. Bernard Parish uh, along the waterway. And I'm estimating that, that they were probably overrun by a surge that was 20 to 25 feet. And then furthermore, you know, they're, they're bounded on the west to some extent um, by the levees of the Mississippi River, and the Mississippi River actually overtopped its levees in three or four different places, creating kind of a lesser flood, but still a significant flood. So essentially you had these people who were in the fulcrum, I suppose, of three separate floods, and something like 95% of the housing stock, and I think about 100% of, the, of their retail infrastructure actually went underwater. Well, the book is in two parts. Part one deals with uh, how the uh, citizens of St. Bernard Parish uh, lived through the storm, and then the second part, it's his aftermath. And there are a lot of different threads that run through the book, but if there's any protagonist, it has to be the shrimp boat captain, Ricky Rabin. When, when I decided that I needed to get into St. Bernard Parish, I, I asked around and realized that the roads between St. Bernard Parish and New Orleans were still underwater, and you could not drive there. And this is like nine days after the storm. And so I decided that I needed to get there anyway, and fortuitously ran into a Black Hawk helicopter pilot who was staying in the hotel I was in. It was the Hilton Airport, Hilton Mountain, Baton Rouge Airport. And he was actually flying relief missions in and out of St. Bernard Parish and knew exactly where the what was left of the government was holding up. And so I sort of begged a ride. And he said, well, you know, I can take you there, but I can't promise you a ride back. And from my viewpoint, I mean, getting there was the most important thing, and I would try to figure out a way back. So I flew in that day, and even though we left very early in the morning, we didn't really land in St. Bernard Parish until the early afternoon, and after trying to get in to see the parish president, a very flamboyant guy named Junior Rodriguez, I was informed that FEMA had just arrived, and this is nine days after the storm, and this is the first that they had seen of, of any you know, federal official who you know, was supposedly coming there to help them out. And I was told that Junior was in, in conference with FEMA, and he was giving the FEMA guy hell, and since there was a lot of hell to be given, it was going to be a while. Um, so I was told to basically cool my heels, which is disappointing, because I, you know, I, I hitchhiked a ride in on a helicopter, and I was really hoping to be able to do some reporting. Well, I went downstairs to just sort of cool my heels for a while, and I noticed a guy who was wearing these sort of ankle-high, um, or actually they're sort of calf-high rubber, white rubber boots, and I grew up in the saltwater bayous in South Louisiana and recognized those boots as stripper boots. And, and everybody who is in the commercial fishing trade, from captains to deckhands uh, to you know seafood processors, all wear these boots. So I sort of knew that this guy was somehow attached to the um, to the seafood trade. So I went up and introduced myself, and it turned out that yes, you know, my, my name is Ricky Robin. Actually, he pronounced it Robin. And I'm a strip boat captain from Wyclosky, Louisiana. And by the way, I and about 30 other captains stayed on our boats at a historic hurricane hole called Violet Canal, which is only about five miles from here. And if you're looking for a story, we have a, we have a story for you. Um, so it was a bit of stroke of luck, not just because I met Ricky, but essentially he had not he had stayed through the entire storm and through the aftermath of the storm, and even though the parish was under mandatory evacuation by that point. 
he had been hired by the local uh, government because they were just desperate to get manpower. The entire police department had been flooded. The entire fire department had been flooded. All their vehicles had been put out of commission, or pretty much all of them. And Ricky still had an operational civilian van and a working shrimp boat. And so he actually offered me a ride uh, and a sort of a tour of a place that was really, at that point in time, kind of impenetrable. And so I began at that point to, to gather his story and the stories of the people around him. And, and essentially the way the book works is that the core of, 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 of the piece is really about Ricky Roban and his cousin Ronald, who are in Violet Canal as the storm is approaching. And even though it may seem foolhardy to outsiders to be on a shrimp boat with a Category 5 hurricane barreling down on top of you, they are, in fact, in a place that has been a traditional hurricane hole since the time of Reconstruction, and their grandfathers and great-grandfathers and great-grandfathers rode out storms there with impunity. And the other part of the equation, of course, is that they no place in the world feels safer to them than their boats. And Ricky actually his boat is called the Low Rick, and it's a 56-foot-long 70-ton steel trawler, and Ricky's attachment to it is long and deep because he actually laid the keel for the boat in high school shop class. I mean, he, you know, he, he was a welder. He had never taken a drafting course. He certainly was not a mechanical engineer. But he just had an idea that he wanted to build a big steel shrimp boat, and so he laid the keel in shop class and actually then went outside on the school parking lot and drew the boat in full form with chalk uh, and then basically kept the design in his head, and by the time he was 20 years old, he had completed, or 21 years old, he had completed this monumental undertaking and essentially built this boat by hand, piece by piece, himself with a welding torch and a little object called a come-along, which allowed him to hang the steel in the backyard of his father's um, um, house down in Wyclosky, Louisiana. So, you know, he, 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 and of course he had he'd gone to sea by the time he was four years old, so by the time he was 12, he could run a boat better than most grown-ups. And, of course, here's that dynamic, you know, here are these very, you know, sea-wise captains <clears throat> realizing that Katrina is coming down on them, but they are very confident because they're surrounded by these levees, and they have their boats, and they're tethered, and they're underpowered. But Katrina turns out to be, I mean, there's a book called The Perfect Storm. Well, this is the imperfect storm, you know, the it was one of these situations in which, at the time after dawn, a couple hours after dawn, when the eye had passed and they actually thought that they were free and clear, was when the storm created all of her worst mischief. And, of course, the, the first bit was to crumple the levees uh, that protected them to the north uh, and, and drown um, the Lord Ninth Ward. And, of course, at around the same time, Katrina battered down the levees on the shipping channel. I mean, we're talking about 17-foot-high levees that were basically eaten out in giant chunks of 1,000 yards wide. So the levees have essentially crumbled, and it set this incredible wall of water essentially over the top of them. And then the Mississippi River, as I said earlier, had breached in several places. So they're standing in this place where essentially three surges sort of collide. And so they're in the middle of these very radical still. I mean, even, you know, much has been made that Katrina, you know, ended up modulating into a Category 3 hurricane. Well, just remember that that still means winds up to about 115, 120 miles an hour. 
And of course, they were still in the shadow of Category 4, so they were probably getting eyewall wins in the 140 class. And on top of that, of course, they are walloped by these incredible surges, which no one expected. And there in Violet Canal, it's both a harbor and it's also, there's a development there. There's a little subdivision, subdivision called Violet Subdivision. And there must have been in the subdivision several dozen people who were riding out the storms, the storm in their houses. And within a two-mile area, there were a few hundred people. So at the moment that the water starts to come, the shrimp boat captains find themselves in this surreal scene where they're being called upon not just to manage their boats in these radical winds and in this astonishing surge which catches them by surprise, but hundreds of people are suddenly being thrust into their care and, and they have to save them. The Good Pirates of the Forgotten Bayous, Fighting to Save a Way of Life in the Wake of Hurricane Katrina, is on sale now at booksellers everywhere. To hear an extended interview with Ken Wells, go to the website, www.yalebooks.com slash podcast. The first year of the American occupation of Iraq was a time of hope and disillusionment. And in his new book, Baghdad at Sunrise, A Brigade Commander's War in Iraq, Peter Mansour presents an unparalleled record of what happened after U.S. forces seized Baghdad in the spring of 2003. As the on-the-ground commander of the 1st Brigade 1st Armored Division, the Ready First Combat Team, Mansour describes his brigade's first year in Iraq, from the sweltering chaotic summer after the Ba'athist defeat to the transfer of sovereignty to an interim Iraqi government a year later. Peter Mansour is the General Raymond Mason Chair of Military History at The Ohio State University. A recently retired U.S. Army colonel, he served as Executive Officer to Commanding General David H. Petraeus, Multinational Force in Iraq 2007-2008, as a member of the Joint Chiefs of Staff Strategy Group that proposed the surge strategy in Iraq in 2006, as founding director of the U.S. Army Marine Corps Counterinsurgency Center, and as commander of the 1st Brigade Combat Team, 1st Armored Division, in Baghdad from 2003 to 2004. Peter Mansour, thanks for taking time to talk to Yale University Press today. What were your duties and the duties of your division during the events of this book? Well, uh, we were the uh, follow-on forces that came in after Baghdad was uh, seized in April uh, 2003. And our duties were to stabilize the situation in Iraq and prepare the way for a transition of uh, sovereignty back to uh, an Iraqi government. And what, when this book takes place roughly after the fall of Baghdad, is that correct? Uh, it uh, actually begins about uh, three months after the fall of Baghdad in June of 2003. And uh, it ends in July of 2004, which is roughly uh, 16 months after the fall of Baghdad. The book gives a really good feel for what was going on during those first months. And one of the things that seems kind of obvious as one reads it is that the frontline troops kind of had a better sense of how severe the insurgency was than the uh, coalition provisional authority did. Was there a time lag between how the two entities perceived what was going on in the streets in Iraq? Well, absolutely. And it actually started uh, at the very top, or very close to the top, with the Secretary of Defense, who denied that there was a guerrilla warfare being waged against the occupation, uh, who would say that we were up just against some dead-enders. And that kind of rhetoric put military commanders in a bind. Um, We knew what was happening. We could see the growing insurgency, but it was hard for us to talk about it and therefore to deal with it. Uh, and be at odds with uh, someone uh, higher up in our chain of command. One thing I got out of the book is that the U.S. Army really seemed to forget the very counterinsurgency experience from Vietnam that might have made a difference in Iraq. Um, You're an historian. First of all, is that reading, uh, would you say that's accurate? Um, It is accurate. Uh, For instance, uh, in the uh, mid-1980s, 
a group of scholars at the Command and General Staff College at Fort Leavenworth uh, wanted to create a elective course, not even a mandatory course, but one that uh, was at least available to officers in counterinsurgency warfare. They went to the doctrinal home at that time of counterinsurgency, the John F. Kennedy School of Special Warfare at Fort Bragg, and asked to see their files from Vietnam, only to be told that they had thrown the files away in the late 1970s because, quote, we would never fight that kind of war again, unquote. Throw files away? I didn't think the military, I didn't think the army really threw anything away. I was surprised it wouldn't have been archived somewhere. Uh, well, we're actually very good at uh, being a typical bureaucracy and, uh, you know, being having our own version of of uh, uh, you know clean out day. So was it just a question of, and these are going to be my words, academic fashion in the military at that point, that ones that had been decided that this was no longer a strategy that's going to be workable anymore, that it was gotten rid of? Did, did it, I mean, I, when you're saying the late 70s, that would have been really the end of the Carter administration, the beginning of the Reagan administration. Was there a sense that because of I guess that the Cold War, if it was going to be fought, really was going to be fought again in kind of the big military set pieces. Well, the Cold War really never went away. Vietnam was part of it. Right. But the sense in the Army was that the main theater uh, of operations was Central Europe. We had to fight. Uh, we had to be prepared to fight the Red Army in, uh, on the plains of Germany, uh, which was a serious threat. And absolutely, it was the right priority to, uh, to focus on conventional high-end combat against the Soviets in Europe. Uh, but what I think military uh, leaders fail to understand is that's not the only type of war, and uh, it certainly wasn't the only possibility for the use of military forces. And in fact, uh, in the next couple decades, so uh, we fought maybe a couple of conventional combats, but hundreds of uh, other types of interventions, humanitarian, peacekeeping, counterinsurgency, and so forth. You were trained as an historian in, in your advanced degrees, and you talk a little bit about in the book about how um, commanders are trained and the things that they go through. And I got a sense early on that you were a little bit critical of the fact that maybe there wasn't enough history being provided. Is that accurate, and is it getting any better? Uh, well, I would say there is not enough uh, study of military history uh, in the Army. The professional military education institutions uh, have some of it embedded in, in their curricula, but uh, for the most part, uh, it's a very technical education uh, focused on uh, important topics such as supply and uh, operations and, and, and whatnot. And that's, that's really critical, but there has to be a component of, uh, of strategy in professional military education. And to understand uh, our profession, uh, the, the best way, absent uh, having to fight a war, is to study uh, the practitioners and the wars of the past. It is getting somewhat better, um, but uh, I think we still have a long way to go in our professional military education institutions, the uh, general staff college, the war colleges, and, uh, and so forth. The stories about some of the day-to-day -day encounters you had, I found really, really interesting. Uh, you know, here in the United States and the West, we get a lot of negative perceptions of Arab culture, uh, particularly because the uh, one, you know, a very extremist element tends to dominate the news cycle. Could you tell us some of the positive experiences with Arab culture you had while you were in Iraq? Uh, Arab hospitality is second to none. Uh, when you are a guest of uh, an Arab host, um, you are treated uh, very, very well. And that's part of their culture. It's a, it's a wonderful part of their culture. Um, 
I loved their food, as you can tell in the book. <laughs> had a good meal. It was, it was written down in great detail. Uh, but I'm half, uh, half Arab myself, and I grew up uh, cooking and eating that food, so, uh, so that was fun. Um, they're, very, you know, they're very kind and generous people uh, when you meet them on an individual level. Uh, but it was hard for uh, many Iraqis to reconcile this force that had come in, um, toppled their government, and was now occupying their country uh, with uh, the innate kindness of uh, most Americans at heart. But, uh, you know, there was a clash of cultures for sure on the streets. One of the things uh, you had to do a lot of in this that I got from the book, apart from, as you mentioned, eating for your country, was a lot of media relations. Were you prepared for that? Did you know that that was going to happen when you went in? Um, no, actually, I was um, not really, uh, I didn't really know what to expect when I went in. I, I thought, as I wrote in the book, that this would be a, a much tougher version of uh, what we had experienced in Kosovo, although I had not been in Kosovo. I was, certainly had uh, studied it, uh, that it would be a very tough peacekeeping operation. But it became clear to me uh, very quickly that, uh, we were in a different kind of war than uh, the one that had been uh, aired publicly, and that uh, this was going to be um, a very, very tough uh, counterinsurgency battle. That made it, um, uh, you know, really uh, imperative to engage the population and to uh, help them uh, in any way we could to uh, secure themselves and, and to provide security for them to. Uh, get their economy moving again to uh, create uh, political institutions that would allow them to air grievances. Uh, and I saw this early on, and I, as, as I wrote in the book, very early on, engaged a variety of groups, tribal sheikhs, civic leaders, students, uh, businessmen, whoever I could find uh, uh, who had any kind of uh, authority or influence in my area to try to, uh, to bring them around. And that's something I got was a little bit different than things that were going on uh, with the CPA. I've done other books for Yale on this. Uh, the Occupation of Iraq by Ali Alawi was one of the first books I wrote on this. And if you read that book and this book together, there's you can't escape the sense that uh, the uh, CPA sitting in the green zone was kind of their own little, as another book would call it, the Emerald City, that it was standing almost alone and not really reaching out to Iraqis. I don't want to get into a slanging match about, I mean, obviously this wasn't your responsibility. This, you had frontline command. But do you have any insights into why this didn't happen from the CPA? Um, I think CPA was put together hastily uh, with very uh, poor and late planning um, and was having such a hard time organizing itself that it couldn't uh, fulfill really its broader mandate, which was to uh, reach out to the Iraqi people. If, if you went into the green zone, and I tried not to go there, but uh, every now and then I did, um, you would find lines of Iraqis waiting to get in to see Bremer or some other functionary. And instead of Americans reaching out, going outside the green zone uh, to meet Iraqis where they lived and worked, uh, you had Iraqis coming to them. That, unfortunately, uh, smacked of the kind of government uh, Iraqis had known during the Saddam years, even though we were obviously not, uh, you know, Saddam Hussein's thugs. Uh, but it did not sit well with most of the Iraqi people, and it was, um, unfortunately, it kept the CPA in the dark as to what the true conditions were on the streets. 
Uh, they needed to get out. Uh, another part of the problem was we didn't have adequate um, security um, for them to get out. It requires a convoy and vehicles and, and guards and whatnot. And uh, there were not enough troops uh, to provide this for all the, the diplomats and, and civilians in the CPA. And we didn't have private uh, security contractors in great enough numbers at that time either, although there were significant problems with private security contractors, and I'm not a big fan of using them. Um, so, yeah, CPA was very isolated, um, disorganized, and uh, unfortunately, uh, I think the results of that first year of our efforts in Iraq showed for it. Baghdad at Sunrise, a brigade commander's war in Iraq, is on sale now at booksellers everywhere. To hear an extended interview with Peter R. Mansour, go to the website, www.yellbooks.com podcasts. Comic art is a vital, highly personal art form in which change, rapid and unpredictable, is the norm. And in the new book, An Anthology of Graphic Fiction, Cartoons and True Stories, Volume 2, comic artist Ivan Brunetti focuses on very recent works and contemporary artists engaged in this world of change. Ivan Brunetti teaches at Columbia College Chicago and the University of Chicago. He has published four issues in his comic book series, Schizo, two collections of cartoons, Haw and He, and numerous comics and illustrations for magazines ranging from The New Yorker to Mother Jones and The Comics Journal. Ivan Brunetti, thanks for taking time to talk to Yale University Press today. Oh, thank you for having me. So in selecting work for this anthology, an anthology of graphic fiction, cartoons, and true stories, how'd you make your choices? Ooh, that's a, um, I guess that's, that's a tough question to answer because it's kind of uh, purely intuitive on some level. Um, I mean, I, I've been reading comics and drawing comics as well for a uh, Good Lord, it must be over 20 years now. So I think I'm pretty familiar with, um, you know, a lot of different kind of comics. And with uh, this anthology and also the previous volume, I just had to trust uh, my intuition on which, which, are, which are the stories, which are the artists that um, really stuck with me through all that time. Um, stories that kind of um, burned a hole through my head or something like that. They um, they grabbed me on on some level, and they stuck with me that whole time. I mean, there's a lot of stories that you 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 might enjoy when you first read them, but I tried to pick things that really stuck with me through all that time, and um, even things that were relatively new. That gets a little more complicated because I haven't had as much time to digest those. But again, it's kind of an intuitive sense of you know this is I think these are artists or stories um, that are going to stick with me for that all that time. When somebody looks at this book on a bookshelf, is it useful to think about it more as maybe a collection of short stories that happen to be illustrated, a book of art history where there happens to be some text? Can you even make that distinction since cartoons are so much both text and visual? Um, yeah, I try. I guess I don't look at it either way. I mean, um, it's. I think this volume is more visually oriented than the first volume. The first volume was. Uh, kind of like told one story all the way through. The, the way I structured it, it felt like it was one long narrative in, in some way. And this one is uh, a little more elliptical, I think, and um, a lot of the connections are, are purely visual, and that doesn't necessarily mean it's um, an obvious visual rhyme. Sometimes they're very subtle things, just kind of like an overall design feel even, or... Um, but I, I mean, even in this one, though, there are certain thematic connections and literary connections between the stories. So it's it's it gets kind of fuzzy when you're um, when I try to 
put categories on things. I think that's what this volume is about, is removing the idea of like putting these things into easy categories and pigeonholing comics because um, all, the, all the stories that I, that I like, um, I guess I'm using the word stories, but some of them are a little more fragmented or even I guess you could say they're more akin to a poem than a story. Comics are um, under a, a threat currently of like, you know, becoming part of the academy and being overly studied. And I think that um, I'm a part of that, of course, as I'm teaching cartooning courses in, in college. But um, I don't like easy categorization. So a lot of the, the, um, the comics that stick with me defy that. Um, I mean, even something as simple as like something's a humorous story or a serious story. I think most of the things I like kind of blur that distinction because they have both sides of that. Um, so with this book, it was sort of, I mean, it feels a lot more freeform to me, um, almost like putting together a collage or, or sculpting something because they're just kind of intuitive little um, leaps that I made from story to story. I found like sometimes really subtle things that connected one piece to the next piece to the next piece. And then, of course, there are motifs that kind of pop up intermittently. Um, I, I think I try to let my intuition guide me. It's the same thing, I mean, the same process that I might use to create a comic story. I tried to use that, um, that process to put together the book as opposed to, you know, stepping back from it and putting a, a pipe in my mouth and my sweater and looking at it purely academically and putting things in the categories. And um, I, I guess that approach just doesn't appeal to me because I'm not built that way. So I, I treated the whole project as if it were a creative project on my part of how to assemble all these things. Um, and I, I think that's akin to, um, you know, assembling a, a comic story. Do you feel any, I want to say, pressure uh, you are, as you mentioned in the introduction, a practicing cartoonist. Uh, you also teach at Columbia College. This is the second anthology that you're editing. So not only have you edited and you're teaching a new generation, but you're still working in the field. Um, I imagine you know some of the people that are in this book, and you probably know some people that aren't in this book who maybe wondered if they should have been. Do you think about how your role in the world of cartooning is changing now that you've taken on these editorial these editorial jobs? Oh, certainly. Um, I mean... Uh, well, the first thing I notice is uh, as I've spent all this time putting together these anthologies, I haven't been practicing my cartooning as much. Um, it's not um, the fault of the anthologies. Of course, I'm, I'm teaching. And I was working um, actually another full-time job in addition to that for most of that time. So a lot of my time was spent you know, not drawing my own comics. Um, and now that I've put together this second volume, I feel that I've kind of completed what I was trying to do Although comics, it's it's sort of just mushrooming. You know, there's so much interesting stuff that by no means are, are these the you know only interesting stories or the only interesting cartoonists. There's just so many, um, especially now. There's a lot of young cartoonists. I mean, there there were books that came out after I assembled this book. You know, that were amazing, and I thought, oh, I wish I could just go back in time and put this cartoonist in the, in the book. You know, but it was just impossible. And there's so many new ones; it's hard to keep up. And I think that's healthy um, for comics. Um, as far as, the, you know, the, there, there is a personal angle. Of course, I've, I've met a lot of the cartoonists, and um, a lot of them were just people I was a huge fan of, and I've got to um, at least correspond with them in the process of putting together the book. So that, that was a lot of fun. And, um, you know, I'd be lying if I didn't say I was worried about all the people that whose feelings I'm going to hurt or offend by not including in there. But 
as much as uh, 400 pages sounds like uh, this immense amount of um, you know comics you could fit in there, it it really wasn't. I mean, there's 800 pages between the two books. I mean, this is crazy. But at one point, as I was finishing assembling the second book, I did think about like, you know, there should be a third anthology. <laughs> But, uh, you know, um, if, I think if I decided to do that, I'd, I'd never draw comics again. So I, um, I don't want to go down that path of filling all my time with these sorts of projects and getting away from drawing them. Because I, I think my ability to put these books together is based on my ability to be a cartoonist myself. And if, if I'm not practicing what I'm doing, it's very hard for me to abstract all this stuff and, and then, you know, put together a book. So I, I feel like I need to be tied to the practice to ap- appreciate um, comics. So I, I don't want to lose that. When we did our first interview, uh, you talked a little bit about the Smithsonian books that had come out on both comic strips and cartoons in general and comic books. Uh, this is now the second anthology of graphic fiction. When you were starting out 20 years ago, you had books and now they're books now. But the generations coming up has had a lot more experience with the internet. Has the internet changed how young cartoonists are developing? Yeah, that's uh, that depends on the cartoonist you're referring to. I mean, I think um, when I and also when I say young cartoonists, probably a lot of them are you know by many standards older cartoonists at this point. Um, so it depends what you mean. There's a, a lot of people that are in their 20s doing things now, and I'm not sure how you know how much the internet was um, an influence as far as the creative aspect of their work goes. I, I think. The cartoonists I'm interested in mostly uh, like the idea of working in print. There are some of them that have actually done really interesting things on the internet as well, so they're not all limited to that. Um, but I, th- I think it just opens up so many other questions that I w- wanted to focus these two books on the idea of working with you know a static page, images on a printed page. It's a sort of a um, you're looking at something static that has the illusion of coming alive or having a sense of movement or, or life to it. So that that's what mostly interested me. Um, you know, I think this is all probably going to be, be changing because now there are, I mean, not only are the, the people that are interested in cartooning now that are very young, not only do they have more access to this stuff because there's just a lot more books being printed. There's a lot of reprints of classic comics that just weren't around when I started doing it. You really had to search for all this stuff. It's a lot easier now. Um, there are more books being printed um, and reprinting old work, old comics work. And there's also the Internet where people are just scanning things and putting them out there. So they have access, a lot easier access to a lot more of cartooning history. Um, so I think um, that will have an impact. I mean, we're starting to see that a little bit, and I think we'll see more and more of that. They're also being exposed to a, a lot more different kind of comics and I mean, to me, sometimes the the world of manga feels like a whole separate world than, you know, the kind of comics I grew up with and and have been interested in. I'm um, there are people that have been looking closely at at Japanese comics and finding some of the ones that are a little bit kind of off the beaten path or or not the the typical manga. And we're seeing more of that kind of work being printed here, and that's been really interesting too because it was just stuff you didn't even know existed because you might think of Japanese comics being a, you know, a certain kind of, of comic, but there's been a, examples in the last 30, even 40 years of stuff that's totally not like that at all. We just haven't seen it in America, and now we're you know, starting to see books that are printing that, and that's been pretty eye-opening. And I think there's just so much more stuff to be visually influenced by that um, 
you know, I'm really curious to see what's going to happen with the next generation of, of cartoonists. Certainly, the, you know, there's there's been a lot of cartoonists that are taking a very different approach to comics than like where I might be coming from. And I think I'm more somebody that wants to write but likes to use drawings to write with. And um, I think there's um, there's a new batch of cartoonists that have really been inspired by an artist named Gary Panter who don't necessarily take that path where, you know, their work's much more visually oriented and not quite as narratively driven. Um, you know, it's just been interesting to see that it goes in all these different directions. The more you try to predict what's going to happen or, you know, like kind of put it under this magnifying glass, um, I think the more it starts to go in, in different directions kind of as a reaction to that. An anthology of graphic fiction, cartoons, and true stories. It's on sale now at booksellers everywhere. To hear an extended interview with Ivan Brunetti, go to the website, www.yalebooks.com slash podcast. Summer's last hurrah is just about over, and the cool, crisp morning air that heralds the arrival of fall is just beginning to manifest. What more opportune time could there be to pick up a Yale book on sale? So, go on over to yellbooks.com, click on the sale banner on the left side of the webpage, and get ready for leaves, hot cider, and a good book. For more information about the show or to subscribe to the podcast feed, go to any podcast aggregator, such as iTunes, Odeo, or any number of sites. Or go to the Yale Press website, www.yalebooks.com slash podcast, and look for the subscription button on the podcast page. My name is Chris Gondek, and if you need comments about the show, feel free to drop me a line at yup.email.news at yale.edu. And that's it for this episode of the Yale Press Podcast. I'd like to thank WBEZ in Chicago for helping engineer part of the Ivan Brunetti segment. But before I sign off, I'd like to take a moment and say goodbye to my executive producer, Dan Lee, who is leaving the show for new challenges in publishing. There never would have been a Yale Press Podcast without him. So Dan, best of luck. And the next time we meet in New York for drinks, I'll try to be far more explicit about which branch of the W Hotel I might be staying in. And on that in-joke, allow me to close by saying that my name is Chris Gondak, and I'm the producer and host of the show. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next month. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Yale Press Podcast. The Yale Press Podcast is a production of Heron and Crane. For more information about the show, go to www.yalebooks.com or www.heronandcrane.com. Copyright 2008. Yale University Press. All rights reserved.